You may be seated. If you would, go ahead and find a Bible, whether you grabbed one uh, as you were coming in or whether there's one in the pew in front of you. Go ahead and open with me to John chapter 1 this morning. We're going to continue in John chapter 1. For those of you that are new, John is one of the first four books of the New Testament called the Gospels that tell us everything we need to know about the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are officially now in this season called Advent where Literally, Christians from all around the world both anticipate and prepare their hearts for Christmas. And they do so by looking at two things. They do so by looking back at Jesus' first coming. That's what the word Advent means, is coming. But they also do so by looking forward to Jesus' second coming, when he will return. As we join other Christians in this season, we thought it would be beneficial for our church to take some time to look at John chapter 1, which offers a bit different perspective than you usually get at Christmas. You see, most of the time, people around this time of year, they want to look at and focus on the facts of Christmas. You find those facts in the the Gospels of Matthew and Luke where they tell you all the details about what happened that first Christmas, the stories of the angels and Mary and Joseph, the baby in the manger, all the, the details about Christmas. Now, there's other years that we've done that, but this year we thought we'd look at John because what's interesting about the Gospel of John is he doesn't tell us any of those details. He doesn't tell us about the angels. He doesn't even give descriptions of what happened. Instead, what John does is he focuses on the significance of what happened that first Christmas. He wants us to understand and see that those events have deep meaning for our life today. And so our prayer for you as we've been going into this series, as we've been praying for our church, is that as you individually prepare for Christmas, that Jesus and the events around Christmas wouldn't just be events that you remember nostalgically, right? That's not the goal. Our prayer has been that these events, you will see the significance of those things, that you will drive those truths deep into your heart in such a way this year that it changes your life. The incarnation, Jesus' coming, changes everything. And that's what we're going to be looking at throughout this series. Now, I would imagine all of us anticipate Christmas in some way. And if you don't, the culture around you, they, they do lots of things to help heighten that anticipation for Christmas. This time of year at Starbucks, you find uh, peppermint everything, right? All these things that are saying Christmas is coming. You see lights on houses. You see tree stores pop up where you can buy a Christmas tree on the, the side of a city street. You see all these things that are meant to heighten your anticipation for Christmas. Advertisers are very, very good at this. That's why you have Black Friday. It's why you have Cyber Monday. You have Giving Tuesday. Pretty much any day of the week, they will take your money, right? That's part of it. They're pointing you. These are signals that are are meant to say Christmas is coming, so you need to prepare. Well, in my house growing up, there was only one thing that signaled that Christmas was coming. We weren't allowed to put out any decorations. We weren't allowed to do anything Christmassy until two people showed up at our house. And those two people are on the screen right now. If you can see it, I don't know if the screen's working. Oh, just this screen. All right, there we go. The Carpenters. Now... How many of you have ever listened to the Carpenter's Christmas album? Some of you. I know these might be fighting words, but I would submit to you this morning that Pentatonix, Mariah Carey, Bean Crosby, none of them have anything on the Carpenter Christmas album. It was our family's 
Christmas activity. When my dad, we had a record player, and my dad would bring out the carpenter's record, and we knew in that moment it is time to prepare for Christmas. It was the signal that Christmas was coming. Well, in our passage today, we are going to see that God, too, has given humanity a very significant signal that the first Christmas was coming, that the light of the world was about to break through the darkness, that Jesus was coming. And that signal was the presence of a person, this man that we know of as John the Baptist. If you would, we're going to read in chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and start at the beginning again. Let's start with verse 1. But our focus for today is going to be verses 6 through 8. John chapter 1. This is the word of God. It says, In the beginning was the word. We talked about that. That's talking about Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And that is our passage today. Now, at first glance, the first time I read this, I remember thinking verses 6 through 8 are surprising because they seem to break the flow of the text. Do they not? I mean, you read it. Think if you were to take these verses out and you were end on verse 5, it says the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, think about if those verses weren't there. You move directly to verse 9. It says this, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. That seems like a natural flow. But in between these two ideas about Jesus as the light and coming into the world, all of a sudden he says, and there was a man named John. It seems odd. Why would John the Apostle write about this other John who we know of as John the Baptist? You see, I believe that John's presence in the story of the incarnation is actually much more significant than most of us give it credit for. In fact, if you look at all four Gospels, John is the only person mentioned In all four of them, Mary Mary and Joseph aren't even mentioned in Mark, and yet John the Baptist is there. If that were not enough, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, he says that among all people that have been born up until that time, no one was greater than John the Baptist. Now, that's a big statement coming from Jesus, right? No one, that John was the greatest human who had ever lived. He's writing this at a time of Caesar Augustus. They had already seen people like Alexander the Great, Socrates, Plato. In the tradition Jesus grew up, they had Abraham and Moses, King David. And yet Jesus says, greater than them all is John the Baptist. How many of you would answer the question, who is the greatest person that ever lived? John the Baptist. Not many of us, right? But Jesus says that. So the question becomes this morning, what makes John the Baptist so significant? Why does he matter? What is his role? Well, John himself knows what his role was, and he says it down in verse 23. If you look down at verse 23, same chapter, he said this, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In other words, what John the Baptist is saying is, I as a person, I'm not that important, but you want to know what is important? It's my voice. It's the message that I carry. John's role in God's big salvation plan for the world was that 
of the herald. Now, I realize in our day, if we want to get out big news, if, if we want to send it out where everybody knows, it takes all of two seconds, right? We get out our phone, we put it on social media, boom, the world has our big news. But in that day, when they wanted to announce that a significant person was coming to a city or when they wanted to announce big news that everybody needed to know, they would send a herald. And that person would go and proclaim a message to make people ready for the coming of some great significant person. Well, that's John's role. And so this morning, I want you to see that as a herald, he proclaims three significant truths that matter not just for their day, but also for our day as we prepare for Christmas. The first truth is this. God always fulfills his promises. God always fulfills his promises. You see, one thing that people often miss when talking about John the Baptist is that he is actually the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. While our Bibles may move quickly from the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, to the first book of the New Testament, which is Matthew, that page that separates your Old and New Testament, do you realize that that represents 400 years? 400 years of silence from God. 400 years of the people of Israel waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Now, just to give you some perspective of how long that is, that would be like somebody making a promise to the first people establishing Jamestown here in America, right? That was about 400 years ago, making a promise to them, and yet here we are, 2017, that promise still hasn't been fulfilled. It's a long time, isn't it? But you think about this, one of the key themes in the scriptures is that God is sovereign and is working everything according to his great plan of salvation. Now, one of the ways that we see that is through what's called the prophetic promises, where in the Old Testament, God speaks to his prophets and and proclaims what's going to happen in advance of it happening. So they began to make these promises, and a lot of these promises revolved around the idea of a Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and rescue them from their peril. There are many different prophecies about this Messiah and what he would be like. Isaiah gives us many of them. Isaiah 7.14, he says, He would be born of a virgin and would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 53, that he would be a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. Isaiah 40, that the Messiah would bring comfort to his people. Isaiah 9.6, that he would deal with evil once and for all and bring about a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Other prophets added to these promises. Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would be king, not just of Israel, but he would be king of all nations. Micah came along and, and prophesied that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and would himself bring Israel peace. And then finally, in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we see God make one more promise. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1, where God declares these words. Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. So what God says at the very end of the Old Testament is, I am coming, but before I do, I am sending my messenger, a prophet, a great prophet, a preacher, and he will proclaim, he will be a herald for my coming. Well, as you can imagine, the Israelites held on to these promises, 
They're sitting under Roman oppression. They don't have many good circumstances that they can hold on to. So they are holding on to what these prophets had said. Surely God will fulfill his promise. And yet for 400 years, God is silent. I hope you won't just quickly pass by that. How long do you give someone to fulfill the promise they make before you get frustrated or just say, you know what, they're not even going to do it? I know with my kids, I give them about 30 minutes. If they say they're going to do something and I come back 30 minutes later, it's not done. I've given up all hope. I'm frustrated. I'm angry, right? We are very impatient creatures. And yet they waited 400 years. But the good news for them in John chapter 1 is here we see that there was a man sent by God named John. And this John was going to be the herald that they had been waiting for. Friends, you need to hear this. God does not forget, nor will he ever negate his promises to us. It's truly amazing. You think about it, this this coming of the herald was just the first of many of the prophecies that would be fulfilled. In fact, think about this. Every detail that God promised about the Messiah in the Old Testament is amazing. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And that's amazing, friends. I mean, perhaps you question this morning that there is a God who sovereignly orchestrates all events will then try to explain how Jesus alone fulfills over 61 specific prophecies about the Messiah made in a span of 500 to 1,000 years before his birth. It's beyond mathematical possibility. And yet Jesus fulfills them all. God always keeps his promises. And friends, that matters because today we have the same trial that Israel was facing in their day. And that was this. It's the trial of waiting. We have received incredible promises in the New Testament, have we not? Incredible promises. And yet here we are waiting for those promises to be fulfilled. For instance, let me give you some examples. We've been promised that God, through Jesus, is going to to rid the earth and rid us of sin and evil, right? We've been made that promise. And yet today, if you look at the news, you're quick to see evil is all around us. It surrounds us. And then we look in our own lives and we see our own motives and our own attitudes and our actions. And we say, hey, it's not just out there. Evil is here. God, when are you going to fulfill this promise? And we wait for that fulfillment. Many of us have been promised as Christians that, that the, the road toward joy, toward having joy, is through submitting our lives to others. And yet there are many days that that doesn't feel very joyful, right? We think, God, how can that promise be true? For many of us, we know that we have been promised that, that joy is in his presence forevermore, that pleasure is in his presence, and yet we sit here struggling to pay the bills and make ends meet. We wonder, God, when are you going to fulfill your promise? We know that you've promised that our trials are meant to to make us into gold, that they're meant to, to, to cause us to be fruitful, and yet all we experience right now in the trial is what? Pain. God, are you actually going to fulfill this promise? I wonder this morning, what promise has God made in his word to you that you are struggling to believe this morning? Do you struggle to believe that he's really working toward his glory and your good? Are you struggling to believe that he actually does love you and that he has a plan for you this morning? I know this, that when I don't trust someone, it affects my relationship with them. 
That's why I have a hard time with car salesmen, and I apologize if any of you are car salesmen. There are probably some very trustworthy car salesmen out there, but I go into that relationship not trusting, and so what does that do? I just want to push them away. How many of you are doing that with God? You've heard his promises, but you're not trusting them. You don't really trust that he's going to bring them to fruition, and so you keep God at an arm's length. I hope that you'll see John's presence in this passage is testimony that God always finishes what he starts. If he says he is going to do something, he will do it. And so as Christians, we hold on to his very precious and great promises. That's the first thing that we see in John's life. But then we find something else as we read verses 7 and 8, and that's this, that he heralds this truth, that none of us are the light. None of us are the light. Now, what am I talking about? Verse 7 says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, again, this is one of those places that kind of seem out of place, right? We think, John, you just told us that he wasn't the light, that he bears witness to the light. Why would you say he is not the light? But what's interesting is when you continue to read this chapter, One of the key themes of John's testimony is what he is not. Not just who he is, but who he is not. You see it four times. Look at verses 19 through 20 with me. There's some people that have come and they begin to question, what is your identity? Who are you? Read what it says, John 1, 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. I am what? I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Look down at verse 26. It says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am what? I am not worthy to untie. Isn't that interesting? John's testimony, part of John's testimony, not was just who I am, but he keeps saying, I am not this. I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not even worthy to untie the Messiah's sandal. You see, John the Baptist realized something that I think some of us struggle to really believe, and it's this simple truth, that the world does not revolve around us. He was very firm in his understanding of his identity. He says, I am not God. I am not the light. And he wants to make clear to everyone, if you put your hope in me, you have a very misplaced hope. This is very important because there is a great danger in each one of our lives of putting ourselves and our wisdom and our strength on a pedestal, right? But John had the opposite attitude. Throughout his life, he was saying, it's not about me. I love one of the other passages, John chapter 3, says this. What's happening is that some of the the people that were following John the Baptist had left him to follow Jesus, right? And so there were some of the people that came to John the Baptist and said, what are you going to do about this? You're the people that used to go to your church are now going to Jesus's church, right? The people that used to like all your messages are liking Jesus's messages. What are you going to do about this? And he replies in this way. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Listen to this verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is John's attitude. You want to know what makes him the greatest person that's ever lived? It's that attitude. He must increase. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Jesus is the spotlight. I don't want the spotlight on me. Jesus is the one worthy of honor and glory. I am but a humble servant. He must increase. I must decrease. I think far too often, one of the reasons we don't live out the joy of the Christian life is that while we might say, Jesus, you increase, I decrease, how do we live? I increase, Jesus. If I'm going to do this thing, I need you to decrease. I need you to do things my way, according to my plan. We put ourselves on the pedestal. We think I am the light. I am the way where people are going to find life and hope. And you know what another danger is, especially in the celebrity-driven culture, is not only do we put our hope in ourselves, what do we do? We try to place our hope and trust in other people. I oftentimes see this in the, a person's spiritual life with a pastor. Uh, just this last week, I was reading on Facebook, one of my friends who was a pastor was leaving the church. And, and on his Facebook post, there were all these people writing, and a couple of them were saying things like this, now that you're not there, I'm not going to go either. I was there for your messages, and they were so powerful and so moving. I'm going to have to find another church now. As I read that, I'm sitting here reading this. I'm thinking, to them, that pastor was the light. Friends, be warned. If your light or your hope in any way is me or any other pastor, I can tell you that is a misplaced hope. I am not the light of this church. Jesus is the light of this church. A pastor's goal is to point people in the direction, the spotlight toward Jesus, where true hope and life can be found. For some of you, it's not placing your hope and trust in a pastor, but perhaps for some of you, in this season especially, it's a political figure or a political party. You think, my hope and trust is in that. If that goes down, well, then my hope and trust are crashed. Or maybe you put it in a community leader. Or maybe you put it at a a person at the workplace. Or for some of you, maybe you put it in a spouse or the prospect of a spouse. You say, if I just have this person, if I can put my hope in them, then I can find life and light. I will tell you this. I'm from Arkansas. A lot of people in Arkansas right now are putting their hope and trust in a new football coach. This is like the, the goal of the Arkansas Razorbacks, right? But here's the problem. What happens when that spouse hurts you and fails you? What happens when that that political candidate candidate doesn't live up to the promises they made in their campaign speech? What happens when that Arkansas Razorback football coach goes 5-11 just like every other year, right? Many people, they fall apart. They despair. They they, they look and they say, well, I can't find light in life. And they go into this continual cycle searching for someone else or something else to put their hope in. Friends, any life or light apart from Jesus, is a fraud. It's an absolute fraud. And it's a hopeless cycle. And so I'm encouraging you, listen to what John says here. Live out his example. He says, don't put your hope in anyone other than God. Let me read Jeremiah chapter 17. And I want you to ask yourself, as this picture is painted in Jeremiah 17, which person am I? Chapter 17, verse 5, that says this, Thus says the Lord, 
Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Be honest with yourself. As you look at your life, as you look at your spiritual life right now, this morning, as it is today, is it better pictured as a parched plant in the middle of a desert? Or is it like that tree that even in the midst of the greatest heat is abiding fruit? Could it be that you've put your hope and trust in something that is not worthy? John says, I am not the light. None of us are the light. No thing is the light. He had found that Jesus is the only true light. In Jesus was life, which leads us to our last point. When you find that Jesus is life, what do you do? You tell people about it. God sends people to bear witness about Jesus is our last point this morning. When you see John's life, that's, a, that's one of the main things that you find. Everything about John's life pointed people to Jesus. That was his identity. Verse 23 says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. His main role in life was to prepare people for Jesus' coming. That's why before Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist went into the wilderness and he began preaching, repent of your sins. God is coming. That means you can't stay the way you are now. You need to repent. You need to acknowledge your sin. The best way you can prepare for Jesus is to say, I am a sinner apart from anything that God does for me. And so he preached a message of repentance and forgiveness. But then when Jesus does show up, what does he begin to do? He begins to move from this message of repentance and forgiveness to saying what? This is who Jesus is. Read it with me in verse 29. John sees Jesus, and this is what he said. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He begins to declare, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the Isaiah 53, the sacrifice for the sin, not just of the Israel, but what he said, for the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who's going to come. And be that perfect sacrifice that's going to bring about forgiveness of your sins. He would go on to say that Jesus was the Son of God, that He was the long awaited Messiah, that Jesus would pour out the Holy Spirit. He begins in every opportunity to share with others who Jesus is and what He had come to do. What's the purpose in that? Well, if you look at verse 7, it makes it very clear. It says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Why? that all might believe through him. This is the first reference to believing in John's gospel, but it happens 97 more times. John's goal was to put Christ in front of each one of us this morning in such a way that we believe in him with the result that we have life. John 20, verse 31, it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is amazing, church. 
God not only is in the work of sending Jesus in chapter 1, but what? He's also in the work of sending witnesses to Jesus. Not only has God provided the foundation for our salvation, Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the life and light of the world, but he has also made available the way that that message is going to spread. And it's not going to be through angels. It's not going to be through all these, the, his own sovereign power. What does he say? I'm going to spread the message about the light and life, Jesus, the word, through people, through you. There's no plan B. He says, you are who I am sending. Now, did John the Baptist have a very special role in that? Absolutely. But it doesn't stop with John the Baptist. Jesus, right before he's going to die, says what? As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. He says that to his disciples. At another place in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you see that it's that passage right before he is ascended into heaven. After his resurrection, he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This morning, not only are you saved if you're a Christian, and I hope you understand this, not only are you saved, but you are sent to be a witness about Jesus Christ, the life and light of the world. Let me just challenge you this morning. This season of Christmas is an amazing opportunity for you to bear witness, for you to tell the truth about what Jesus has done in your life. There are many people in our world today that are looking for light. When they look at their own life, when they look at the news, all they see is darkness. And they're wondering, what is the answer to this darkness? What is the answer to the evil out there and the evil within? Friends, we know the answer. It is light, Jesus. There are many people that are searching for life, especially around Christmas time. That's why they go out and buy all these possessions. That's why they they put so much weight into their family time and all these things. Why? Because they want life. They want joy. They want security. They want peace. Anything apart from Jesus is not going to give that long term. Everything will fail them. But we as Christians have the answer. We know where life can be found. It is found in Jesus. John the Baptist was a herald that said, Jesus is life. Jesus is light. I am not. I'm a willing vessel. I just want to tell people about him. Church family, I wonder, who has God called you to go tell the same message to? You think, Ryan, how do I bear witness? I don't know everything there is to know about Christianity. Bearing witness is simply, it's just the picture of a courtroom. You tell people what you know. In what ways has Jesus given you life? Tell people that. In what ways has he shown light in the midst of your darkness? Tell people that. For some of you, maybe it's simply this. This, is, this Friday is a huge opportunity. You say, I've been wanting to, to connect with this person that doesn't know Jesus. I want to share, but I don't know how. Maybe a first step is simply inviting them to Carol Fest, where they can interact with other Christians. They can interact with you in that relational environment. Who has God sent you to invite to Carol Fest? Maybe it's Christmas Eve service. Maybe it's to invite somebody into your home where you can share what Christmas means to you. Invite somebody to coffee. I will tell you this. God will put opportunities in front of you this Christmas season. The question is this. Will you live out John the Baptist's example? Will you be a herald both of who Jesus is and what he has done? Because John the Baptist lived out this calling, what does Jesus say? He was the greatest person that's ever lived. 
But Jesus goes on to say, but all that are in the kingdom of heaven are even greater than him. Why? Because we've seen the whole thing. John was anticipating Jesus dying on the cross. He didn't get to see it. We've seen Jesus' death. We've seen his resurrection. We've seen his power at work in our lives. How can we not be bold about proclaiming who he is? I pray that this season, God will give you opportunities, church, and that you will be faithful to bear witness to the light.